Hello and welcome to the Politics Home General Election podcast. I'm Matt Honeycomb-Foster, news editor here at Politics Home. Boris Johnson's big election gamble has paid off, and how. In a stunning night for the Conservatives, the PM has delivered the party's biggest majority since Margaret Thatcher's second term, wiping out Labour in its former heartlands and giving Johnson the mandate to get his Brexit deal through the House of Commons with ease. Politics has seemed pretty stuck for much of the past three years in the wake of the EU referendum, but this has felt like a proper realignment with massive implications for all the parties that we'll surely be chewing over for months and years to come. But of course, the absolute best time to get stuck into all this is when we haven't really had any sleep and we're running on about 17 cups of coffee. So I'm thrilled to say I'm joined today by Poll Home editor Kevin Schofield, a man for whom sleep is just a, an abstract concept, <laughs> and um, uh, Alan Tolhurst, who we learned today makes incredible sausage rolls that he brought in for the team to keep them going oh, through really the night. Nice. Yeah, Bring them out just for, uh, just for election time. They're delicious. Fantastic move, and um, thanks for joining me, guys. No problem. So um, we'll, we'll come on to the implications of last night's result for Labour, the Lib Dems, the SNP. There's, there's so much to get stuck into. But first, let's assess the scale of the Tory victory itself. Kevin, just in case any of our listeners have been living under a rock, give us the, the top line results, because they're pretty stark. Yeah, so the, the Tories are heading for a majority of around about 80 uh, seats. Um, they're on 364 MPs now. That's up 47 on where they were beforehand Labour a horrendous night they're down 59 they're on 203 that is the, the party's worst election performance since the 1930s uh, great night for the SNP uh, exceeded all expectations even Nicola Sturgeon's own expectations I think um, they're up 13 seats on 48 Lib Dems down one on 11 an absolutely horrendous night for them I'm sure we'll come on to it but Joe Swinson obviously party leader losing her seat DUP disappointing night as well they've gone from 10 to eight. I mean, they've gone from being a party which had the uh, Theresa May's government by the short and curlies to being completely irrelevant uh, now in, in Parliament, I would suggest. And um, yeah, that, those are the main headline figures, so a pretty um, astonishing performance by the Conservatives. Now, Alan, there are so many um, results to choose from here, but what were the kind of most eye-catching Conservative gains of the night? Well, I think, yeah, there were, there were a number of marmalade droppers, I think, in uh, as Labour's so-called red wall was sort of turned to rubble effectively and there are lots of seats that I think Lee, uh, the Don Valley, Rother Valley that have been Labour for 100 years thereabouts which were now represented by, by a Tory which it seemed unthinkable before the EU referendum but I think the big one for me was you know, in the wake of that stunning kind of exit poll was Blythe Valley which I think when that went, you know, a former mining town up in the northeast, when that went and it did go the way that the exit poll had predicted and gone to Conservative. I think we knew at that point that the exit poll was not some outlier, that it was right, and that we were going to see a pretty extraordinary night of gains for the Conservatives. So that one, and I think also similarly, you know, seeing um, Laura Pidcock in North West Durham and Dennis Skinner, the beast of Bolsover, you know, two sort of totems of the left at the sort of opposite end of their careers, you know, both losing their seats. Again, both, you know, old mining communities voting Conservative, um, you know, it was really remarkable and it kind of shows the kind of, not just the scale of victory, but the kind of the way that the Tories have done this. And it, it could also have been so much worse. I mean, Ian Lavery in Wandsbeck, which again, northeast seat, uh, Labour Heartland, that went to a recount. He only won by about 800 um, votes. And Ed Miliband, former Labour leader um, up in Doncaster, uh, again, safe Labour seat, you'd have thought, 
and that was really tight as well. He only won, I think, by just over a thousand votes. Yeah. So, um, I mean, it could even have been worse for Labour, yeah. um, you know, if, if that is if that's possible. This kind of result has been the dream of Conservative leaders for a long time. Theresa May made a pitch for the the, the same kind of Labour heartlands, and George Osborne long sort of dreamed about broadening the Conservative vote. Um, How has Boris Johnson managed to do this? What's what's the thing you think that's swung it? Well, I think, first of all, he does owe Theresa May uh, a bit of thanks, actually, because she um, made a fair bit of progress, actually, in the 2017 election, uh, chipped away at a lot of these big majorities that Labour had in, in, in the North, uh, but didn't quite, didn't quite um, push over that red wall. I mean, essentially, it was a very simple message of get Brexit done. These are areas which voted, by and large, for Brexit. Uh, the voters have been heartily sick and tired of the shenanigans in Parliament. Uh, continually stopping Brexit from happening and yeah it was a brutally simple and very effective message um, that the Conservatives had in the, in the election campaign but added to that I don't think it's possible to, to underplay um, uh, or overplay I should say how important uh, the, the Jeremy Corbyn factor was as well. I mean you kept hearing that from Labour MPs during the, during the, um, the, the, the campaign actually on the doorstep Corbyn was coming up as an issue far more than Brexit was. So I think it's a confluence of those two things have come together to create a perfect storm as far as as far as the Labour Party is concerned. Yeah, I think this the result of twenty nineteen is effectively the twenty seventeen result, but in the post. You know, I think that essentially the big issue. You know, we've seen uh, Boris Johnson thanking former Labour voters for going Conservative this time. You know, and they're saying effectively lending their votes to the Tories in order to get Brexit done. I think we could have seen this result in 2017 had Theresa May had the same clarity about Brexit mm. that Boris Johnson uh, has had. She obviously tried to sort of have a more expansive manifesto and it got muddied with the dementia tax, which meant that those Labour voters didn't, all of them didn't go over it. And as, as Kevin said, we saw sort of 20,000 majorities go down to 10,000 and now we're seeing it go sort of over the line into the Tories this time round. You know, whether that will happen in the future, I'm not sure. But certainly, you know, this has been the message. And essentially, all it required from Boris Johnson was, you know, a more kind of charismatic leader than Theresa May and a much more focused message around getting Brexit done you know, as soon as possible. Kevin, um, what do you think the Prime Minister is going to do with this mandate? Um, Alan sort of touched on there that, that, that there's a sense perhaps Labour supporters have lent the Tories their vote and he, he might have to try hard to kind of cement that support over the longer term. So what, what can we sort of expect from the next five years if that's what the, Boris Johnson now gets? Well, that, that is quite interesting. You know, the, the, the Tory tribe, if you want to put it that way, is now very different to the one that voted for Margaret Thatcher in, in, in the 1980s, uh, or John Major in, in, in 1992. You know, these are um, traditionally Labour voters, so they want spending on public services. They don't want the state to be rolled back. So I think it would be a, it would be a mistake for Boris Johnson to, to unleash some sort of Thatcherite agenda of um, stripping back the state and mass privatisations, all, all, that, all that type of thing. Although I don't think there's much left to privatise, to be perfectly honest with you. But, um, so, you know, it's going to be very interesting to see how, how he approaches it. And when he said that in his speech this morning, it, I thought it was, it was pitched pretty well, actually. It, it was quite a humble speech that wasn't boastful. And he did say, you know, thank you to the Labour voters who, whose hands probably quivered as they hovered over the uh, Tory box in the um, 
polling station and now he's got to basically try and get them on board so it's not just a one election wonder so that when the next election comes they'll vote Tory again so yeah as I say he's got to um, uh, keep his promises on not privatising the NHS or selling off the NHS to, to, to Trump and um, increase spending on public services. I would be very surprised if they were to go any further in terms of welfare cuts. I think you could see them maybe being a little bit more generous in terms of benefits as well. So it's going to be a very different type of Conservative government, I think. I saw someone this morning describe it as actually quite a, a, maybe a bit of a new Labour agenda, and I think that's, that's fairly accurate. Um, hammered home relentlessly throughout the campaign, of course, was the uh, mantra of get Brexit done. What does a victory of this scale mean for um, plans to leave the European Union? Well, it definitely means that we'll be going on January 31st, or certainly we'll get the withdrawal agreement bill and the Brexit deal through Parliament. Um, there's absolutely no danger that that's not going to happen. We'll get a Queen's speech next week. Um, setting out uh, the Tories' um, domestic agenda. We'll get second reading of the withdrawal agreement bill before Parliament rises at the end of next week as well. So it'll be quite a busy run-up to to Christmas. But yeah, we'll, we'll technically leave on January the 31st, um, but then it's the race against the clock to try and get some kind of free trade agreement with the EU by the end of next year. Um, or else we're looking at another no deal again. Now I saw one theory being, being put about that actually this now gives Boris Johnson carte blanche that if he wanted to he could extend that implementation period so rather than leave, rather than take it to the wire to the end of next year he could say look to EU we don't want to leave without a deal so why don't we just push that back. Now he said in the campaign that they would never ever extend the implementation period as it's called but who's going to stop him now? You know he's got a, the, the ERG the Tory Brexiteers who made um, Theresa May's life an absolute misery and who Boris Johnson had to court in order to become Tory leader, they're pretty insignificant now. You know, they're they're now a small part of the of the Tory party. So, you know, he's the master of all the surveys. So if he wanted to, he could um, push back the deadline of the implementation period. So I think this makes uh, a hard Brexit and no deal Brexit far less likely. Uh, Alan, do you agree that this, this does marginalise the ERG who as Kevin said, basically defined and then ended Theresa May's premiership. Yeah, I mean they're an extremely powerful pressure group within the party, but they're only they only wield that power when they're sort of they're, when they make up the difference between getting a majority or not getting a majority. In this situation, you know, with a majority of, of as Kevin says, eighty, you know, even if sort of forty or fifty of them decided they were going to go, well, you know, Boris Johnson still got a good chance of, of getting something through. Um, and I do think that we'll see, you know, Jacob Rees Mogg who was their leader, was brought into the cabinet as a kind of a bit of a, uh, you know, as a sop to the, to the ERG. I think, you know, after his performance in the election campaign, we could see him moved out of the cabinet. And I think they could be completely sort of marginalised and go back to being this kind of weird internal pressure group that, that leaders sort of pretend that they have to, you know, speak to, but actually sort of try and steadfastly ignore as they, as they, as they seek a sort of more one nation agenda. Do you think um, Boris Johnson's instincts are those those one nation instincts? Because he he absolutely tacked to the right during the leadership yeah. campaign, but now he's got a little bit more breathing room because he was seen as a quite quite a liberal Tory as a mayor as a mayor of London. Do you yeah, we might see that again now with a majority Conservative. Yeah, I mean the thing with Boris Johnson is you know he, he tacks to whichever way suits his short term political advantage. So you saw that during the election campaign, he talked about one nation conservatism because he was trying desperately to reassure those Labour voters that he wasn't some mad um, right-wing Thatcherite. Um, and he was at it again this morning saying, you know, this, this one nation conservative government. Um, so I think, yeah, the, the proof will be in the pudding, I suppose. I mean, it'll, it'll just be 
uh, interesting to see. I mean, I think instinctively he is pretty right wing, um, but whether he'll be allowed to get away with that, as I say, if, if he wants to build this broad coalition to, to keep those Labour voters on side, then he'll probably have to curb those those instincts and be a little bit more um, moderate, a little bit more of the left, perhaps. But um, but yeah, as I say, I don't think you have to scratch the surface too too far with Boris Johnson to actually um, see that he's pretty right wing underneath. But I think that one of his problems in that situation, if he does want to become more of a one nation, is that he's assembled probably the most right wing cabinet that we've seen for a long time, and in, in someone like Priti Patel, pretty hard, you know, pretty. Um, you know, hard on, on crime. Home Secretary, you know, Sajid Javid as, as Chancellor is a very Thatcherite kind of fiscally as well. So therefore, you know, do you think that maybe we'll have to see a quite a sizable reshuffle possibly after January 31st and once we're sort of technically out of the European Union for him to start to kind of, you know, do that? He's already talked about the budget being in February that maybe he'll, that's where he'll start to make that move if he does want to, to move away from the sort of campaign that he ran in the leadership contest. Let's take a look now at how Labour performed last night, Kevin. Um, how bad a night was this in, in kind of historical terms? Well, it was absolutely horrendous, yeah. I mean, it's the worst, officially the worst um, since, I think, 1935. Yeah. Um, uh, and, you know, the one that was always held up in recent times was 1983 in Michael Foote, uh, um, leading Labour Party to, I think, uh, 208, Nine, I think 209 yeah. seats. Uh, and no one really thought they would ever go back to those days again. And, yeah, and they're down to 203 now. So it's, uh, by any measure... It's been an absolutely horrendous night for the Labour Party. And like, like I said earlier, they were almost caught in a perfect storm. You know, The election was primarily about Brexit. Labour desperately tried to move on to the NHS and public services. But um, they were caught with the fact that lots of their voters voted to leave in 2016, but the vast majority of their members were pro-Remain. So they came up with this policy that was neither one thing nor the other, and it completely blew up in their faces. Um, but yeah, in historical terms, it is an awful night. You look at some of the, the people who lost seats, Mary Cray, uh, Jenny Chapman, Ruth Smith, um, just, you know, these northern citadels, uh, which have been Labour since, you know, Moses was an altar boy. And... Um, they're, they've gone, and now the challenge, whoever succeeds Jeremy Corbyn, is to try and win them back, but it could be a very long haul indeed. Now, Jeremy Corbyn um, pretty quickly said that he wasn't going to fight the next election as, as Labour leader, um, but he's not exactly in a rush to leave, is he? What, what's the latest? Well, the very latest is he says that there will be a, a leadership contest in the new year, which is suitably vague, you know, that could be... I mean. You hear that and you think, well, maybe any time up to March. But, I mean, it wouldn't surprise me if it went on longer. I mean, the things to, to, to remember is the, the whole point of the Corbyn project, really, was to seize control of the Labour Party. Yeah. And that is what uh, is now driving them. They're not, he's not going to be Prime Minister. It's going to be a long time before we see a Labour government again. But what they don't want is to give the party back to the moderates, to the centrists, to the Blairites, to the Brownites. They want to make sure that Jeremy Corbyn's successor, whoever he or she is, is from the same mould. So we've already seen that this morning, this, this attempt to try and blame Brexit entirely for the result, try and um, distance Jeremy himself from any blame, um, say that while the manifesto and the policy were incredibly popular, all that was drowned out by... Um, uh, Brexit. Now the difficulty they've got is that we understand that Laura Pidcock, who Alan mentioned there, lost her seat. She was seen as 
the sort of heir apparent to Corbyn. So now they're having to look around to see who is the next person that who can carry the Corbynite flame. So I think they'll try and play for time. Uh, the leadership timetable table is in the gift of the NEC, Labour's National Executive Committee, which is run by Corbynites yeah. now. So they're in complete control of the process. Which is and why will... Corbyn, Corbyn said twice in his interview, he said, I'll leave that to the National Executive, knowing full well that they're not going to turn around and say, right, you're on your ear, you've got to go now, that they will give him the time that he wants. He's, he's very always very keen on having an internal dialogue and a discussion and that sort of stuff, and he said that would be very healthy for the party. And, you know, most of the parties would kick a leader who's lost not one but two elections to the curb straight away. Yeah. You know, but I think the NEC... As, as Kevin said, oh, you know, a lot of Corbynites in there, therefore they're going to give him this time, and despite all the pressure from losing candidates and other people, I think there is a chance that we might well see Jeremy Corbyn staying on. You know, the idea of him taking Prime Minister's questions in the new year is utterly bizarre, but we could still see that because you know, th there isn't that internal pressure to get rid of him from the, the people at the top of the party. Although it's not exactly been kind of um, sweetness and light between Jeremy Corbyn and the um, Parliamentary Labour Party since 2017, there has been a kind of uneasy truce. Do you think um, if Corbyn doesn't go quite quickly, we could see another move from the PLP against the leadership and they'll just try to force his hand here? Uh, it, it, is, it is possible, but it would be fairly symbolic given that we know that he is going um, and it would be to precipitate his move you know, by a couple of weeks. It's whether mm. they want to create that level of rancor. You know, the people who were involved in the, you know, in the pushes against him before, you know, dubbed the chicken coup by the Corbynites. You know, they've never really been forgiven by the members, and so therefore, you know, given that it is a selectorate of, we still think a largely fairly left-wing, you know, Corbyn supporting membership. You know. If you did want to take over the party, then you probably have to grin and bear these next few weeks and months if you do want to, therefore, try and take over the party and wrestle back to, to, to where it was before. Kevin, it doesn't seem like anybody's really um, stuck the, the knife in yet. Who, who's been making sort of leadershipy sounding noises, though, in the, in the early hours of this morning and, and today? Yeah, I mean, in these situations, you have to be a bit of a Kremlinologist and read between the lines. No one's going to come out and say, uh, Jeremy Corbyn is an idiot, he's got to go... <laughs> And I want, and I want to be leader. You know, no one is going to be quite as as black and white as that. So you've got to kind of read the runes a little bit. But but yeah, I mean, you can already see from the things that they've said or not said that Emily Thornberry, I think, will definitely go for it. Jess Phillips is someone else who is certainly considering a run. Keir Starmer, um, he's another one. So yeah, Lisa they're all, Nandy, I think. As Lisa well. Nandy, yeah, she was actually that's a good point. She was probably the most. Uh, explicit. Uh, um, she was re-elected as, as, as Wigan MP and in her speech, her acceptance speech, she said, you know, I've listened, you know, I've heard so many Labour uh, voters say, uh, I can't vote Labour this time, you've let us down, I haven't left Labour, Labour left me, and she said, I get it, and she said something like, I will get the party back for you. So that, it was as close as anyone's come to saying, right, I'm going to stand for, for, for the leadership, and I, I mean, I think Lisa would be a bit of a dark horse. She's a woman, I think the next leader has got to be a woman, um, and she's northern, she's articulate, she's very bright, uh, and she's soft left, you know, so you can see how she might appeal to both wings of the party, so I think she would definitely be one to, one to watch. Is it fair to say that the next leader, you mentioned the next leader, probably has to be a woman, do they have to be a leader from outside the kind of remain strongholds, the big cities where Labour has clung on this time? I, I don't know whether they necessarily have to be 
a lever, but I think Northern, I think they do have to be Northern. I don't think, I think it instantly rules out Keir Starmer on both fronts, but also Emily Thornberry. I mean, the idea that the next Labour leader should also um, come from, uh, represent an Islington constituency. Yeah, a Remainer from Islington, I, I mean, think, is not going to go down very well. I think with, you can forget that. I think you can uh, forget I think, I think you're right. I think someone like Angela Rayner, who's consistently said that she would honour the result of the referendum, She's obviously got an interesting sort of personal backstory as well in the way that she's, you know, moved into politics. And similarly, Rebecca Long Bailey also represents, um, you know, Salford and Eccles, another one with an interesting sort of backstory and, and a northern seat. So I think that they will probably be the sort of strongest contenders to try and sort of bring back those different halves of the party. If you think that they've lost a lot of seats up in the north and the Midlands, which did vote leave, you have to feel that you have to try and maybe get someone there who can seek to represent those people and drag them back to their side. Is there anything Labour can be cheered uh, by in this result at all? Are there any bright spots for the party or is this just wipe out? Uh, you know, if you're in opposition for nine years um, and you only gain one seat in an election, which was Putney in the south-west London, you really are clutching at straws. Uh, you know, John Landsman was sort of trumpeting uh, the leader momentum was trumpeting the this victory in Putney and it just it, it honestly it starts to look fairly deluded if you start to talk about that you know if you're losing seats that you've held for a hundred years left right and centre um, and you're going backwards against a, a government which we're forever being told is deeply unpopular due to austerity and a whole host of other things if if you're losing seats and you, you only make one gain you know all of your target seats effectively stay blue then Unfortunately, there isn't a great deal um, to hold on to, really. I think what we're seeing is, as well, as a result of the fact that after the 2017 election, the Corbynites were emboldened. They had obviously did far better than anyone expected then. And they routed all the experienced centrist people from Labour HQ, people yeah. who had run campaigns, who knew what it took to actually um, organise campaigns and win seats and you see now what the upshot of that was. There's lots of people in there who are very enthusiastic, very devoted to the leader, but completely um, inexperienced when it came to, to running a campaign and it was it was fairly shambolic really. Yeah, and, and some of the seats we profiled, I went to Chingford and Woodford Green where they, a huge amount of resources were put into trying to unseat Ian Duncan Smith and failed. Similarly down at Uxbridge and South Ryslip, Boris Johnson's seat, you know, it, essentially it's a, a, quite a crazy campaign trying to take get rid of the Prime Minister who, you know, had a 5,000 majority. It wasn't a tiny majority, it was still a sizable majority, you know, effectively didn't really get anywhere and all those resources could have been put into into other places, you know, they, they didn't win any of their other sort of Labour targets and they lost places like Kensington, you know, which you think could have maybe had a, a better use for those resources. Kevin, do you think Labour can uh, get back into power in the next five years or is this going to be a long period in opposition now? It would take a remarkable turnaround um, for them to get back into power in one leap. It strikes me as a Two election minimum um, government now. Uh, so whoever has, that, that's that's the other thing to consider. And you know, what I mean, being not the leader of the opposition is probably the worst job in politics anyway. But to look at the numbers as they are now, to basically already be writing off the next election and thinking, well, this is a ten-year project to hopefully get in a position where we can get back into power. I mean, it's a massive task. You would be taking on, but you know that that is the reality of of, of where they are, and they've got to 
I guess they've got to play the play the hands that they've been dealt. Yeah, you'd essentially need a catastrophic outside event, so yeah. like a financial crash, or you know something like the expenses scandal, which completely flipped how politics was viewed and how parties were viewed, and you saw lots of people standing down. Similarly, if the way that things go post Brexit, if it is disastrous as some people predict, then I think you could see a swing back, you know, and a blame could be apportioned to the Tories for delivering something which then went very badly. But apart from that, I, th- I think Kevin's right. It's 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 very difficult to see how you would turn around such a a, a big uh, gap in, in such a short space of time, which which is something that the Corbynites have been talking about. You've seen online to talk about whether you know it's a it's a long project. And almost as though they're saying, right, we're just going to stick around and hang in there and think that we can carry on holding on to the machinery because no one else is going to be able to take over and deliver a turnaround and, and get rid of us. So it's, it's, it's quite a, a tough-looking prospect for whoever takes over. Another absolutely jaw-dropping moment of the morning was Lib Dem leader Jo Swinson losing her seat to the SNP. Kevin, how have we gotten from um, Prime Minister in waiting <laughs> at the start of this campaign uh, potentially getting a t- 200 seats to um, uh, XMP over the course of the campaign? Well, two things mainly. One, um, the, the policy of revoking Article 50 was an absolute stinker of a policy. Uh, I mean, the Lib Dem argument was well, it would only apply if we got a majority, and let's be honest, that was never going to happen. Therefore, it was never really a proper promise that actually the, the only they really supported a second referendum. But what they tried to do was to make themselves out completely distinctively from Labour as the pro-Remain party. Vote for us, put us into government, and we will cancel Brexit, lock, stock and barrel. Now, that had the benefit of clarity, but it also annoyed so many voters, even Remain voters, who thought it was undemocratic, that you can't really overturn the result of referendum without another referendum. So that was a horrendous policy. And also, just Jo Swinson herself, you know, they, they they tried to make the certainly the early part of the campaign all about Jo Swinson as she was this fresh face up against these old, uh, boring, middle-aged or old men and Jeremy Corbyn and Boris Johnson. It was her face on the bus, wasn't her it? Her face on the bus, yeah. Tories and Labour didn't have their leaders on the, on, on the face. It was almost billed as Jo Swinson's Liberal Democrats on the side of the bus. Yeah, and the danger, the problem that they had there was that the more voters saw of her, the less they seem to like her. So um, th- their campaign just, you know, just nosedived very quickly and never ever recovered. Uh, their polling went down. Labour ate into their their poll numbers um, quite substantially. And you know, on the night itself, the thing was, Joe Swinson obviously became a target. They were still relatively confident that she would survive. That uh, a pro-union tactical voting initiative would, would save her in East Dunbartonshire, but obviously that, that didn't work and it's been a pretty ignominious end to a, a five-month time as Lib Dem leader. Yeah. So we've now got an interim leadership arrangement between Ed Davey and the party's president, Sal Brinton. Um, in the long term, have the Lib Dems got anybody left who, who might succeed Joe Swinson because they are quite a reduced force now. Yeah, and also of those 11, several of them are, are new. They lost some seats, they won some seats, so they've got some new M- MPs as part of that. And a couple of other senior MPs, um, Tom Brake, lost his seat in Carshalton and Wallington in South London. So there's 
Ed Davey, who was a, a minister in a, a cabinet minister actually in the in the coalition government, he would seem the most likely. He he, he stood against Joe Swinson and, and lost, but was made deputy leader and is clearly still popular within the party. So I think it, it could be seen as him perhaps taking over until the next generation of the younger MPs. Um, Leila Moran, the Oxford uh, MP, she thought about selling last time, but then had. Um, to develop the divulge a personal issue which ruled her out but I think in the long term she is seen as someone who has the sort of enthusiasm and, and the kind of the drive to, to maybe take the party on but at the moment you know they're in a real sort of period of, of, of problems at the moment and it perhaps does take someone like Ed Davey and, and Sal Brinton maybe in the longer term just to kind of keep the party steady until they kind of work out what their potential future is because for them it's looking very difficult to see where their position what their role now is Parliament in, 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 in Parliament. Kevin, you mentioned um, with the Article 50 policy there that the Lib Dems basically went full tilt pro-Remain. Um, does this election result mark the end of the Remain project and the, the campaign for a second referendum? Oh yeah, completely. I mean, that's, that's just dead now. Uh, there's no chance of a second referendum. Uh, we're definitely going to leave the EU on January the, the 31st. I guess the question then becomes, does the Lib do the Lib Dems attempt to make themselves distinctive by being the still the pro-EU party who would campaign to take us back, back in, in yeah. to the European Union? That would have the benefit of distinguishing them from the other parties. But whether it would be popular, I, I'm not sure. I mean, well, actually, I'm sure. I'm sure it would be unpopular. Uh, I just don't see any appetite in this country, once we've left, to go back in and have to sign up to the Euro, yeah. losing the rebate, etc., etc., etc. I just think politically yeah. it would be... A, you know, certainly not in the near future, certainly not in the next 20 years anyway. Who, who, say, who can say what can happen in the longer term? But certainly any party that was to become a, 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 um, in favour of going back into the EU, I think would be taking a hell of a political risk. Yeah, I think that the idea of a second referendum before we actually exit, it, it, that now has gone. As Kevin said, there is potential for another referendum down the line to, to go back in if we don't like it outside the EU, but I think that would be a, that would be a pretty difficult um, a difficult sell for any party. I think given given where we've got to and and the the problems that we've had in acting this first referendum anyway. Um, the Lib Dems were were boosted in the last Parliament by a, a wave of defections. Yeah. Um, what what was the independent group sort of merged into a large part merged into the Liberal Democrats. Um, none of those defectors fared well, did they last night? No, that's an understatement. They all, all, all lost their seats. Not a single independent or defector won their seat. You know, even the, some of the, the Tories who lost the whip and weren't giving it back over uh, Brexit, who stood as independents like David Cork and Dominic Grieve, they put in good showings, but they lost their seats. Um, and yeah, like all of the um, Labour MPs who became Lib Dems um, and the Tories as well, like Sam Jima um, and Chuck and Munna and Luciana Berger. Felly. Philip Lee as well, all failed to win their seats. Um, and uh, some of those as well, like Kevin Shuker, and again, failed. It's the brutality of our first-past-the-post and also our fairly tribal political system just meant that they, they without, the, um, without the same ticket they'd been running on previously, they, they find it very difficult. Now, Kevin, it was a great night for the SNP in Scotland, who um, already dominant there, but managed to add more MPs to their um, total. Um, doesn't seem to be any sign of voter fatigue after years of the SNP uh, doing very well there, does it? It's, it's extraordinary, really, because um, you know they've been in power in the Scottish Parliament since two thousand seven. You know they're coming for a lot of criticism for the state of the education system up there, state of the NHS up there, and they've not got a great domestic record, and yet. Every single election that comes along, 
they always do well and the opinion polls still show them miles in front. I mean, they benefit from the fact that they are the pro-independence party and the pro-union parties are, are split, obviously, Lib Dems, Labour and Tory. So they benefit from that. But they've also got the best leader up there in yeah. Nicola Sturgeon. She was head and shoulders above any of the other leaders in the debates that were on the, the TV. Um, and they've got a very... Well, I was going to say they've got a very clear message. I mean, the strange thing about their performance last night was that I didn't think they had a great campaign because they started off the campaign saying vote SNP for a second Scottish referendum. That didn't seem to go down terribly well. All that did was put rocket boosters under the Scottish Tories saying vote Tory for no NDF2. So they they changed tack midway through the campaign and said, oh, vote SNP, stop Brexit. So it seemed like a bit of a mixed message, but you know, it worked for them. So you had people who thought, well, I'll vote SNP because I want a second referendum. So they voted SNP. And the other people thought, well, I'll vote SNP to stop Brexit. And they voted SNP. And what that did was that massively ate into the Labour vote in Scotland. So the Labour vote in Scotland collapsed. Um, the, the Tory vote actually held up reasonably well, but they still lost seven seats. Labour lost six seats. So those 13 seats all went over to the to the SNP and that's how they ended up now on, on 48 and in a hugely commanding position and that's going to be really interesting to look at how that dynamic plays out because Nicola Sturgeon is already saying well I now have a reinforced mandate for a second referendum Boris Johnson said in the campaign I will refuse a second Scottish referendum but you know in doing that is he not risking just um, inflaming more nationalist support in Scotland um, and hastening the end of the union. Uh, so, you know, that's going to be a fascinating one to watch. I'd be very surprised, actually, if we don't have a second Scottish referendum before the next general election. And do you think the PM will be able to resist those calls for a second independence referendum, or is that looking pretty inevitable now? I think in the short term, he won't want to uh, row back on what he said. And I think, you know, the the fact is that he he made himself minister for the union mm. as well as being prime minister when he when he took over and he won't want to sort of go back on that i think uh 2021 is the scottish parliament elections and i think again if the snp get a big majority there i think they you know nicholas Surge, that's a double mandate they've mm. got a huge majority of mps in westminster they've got a majority of scottish parliament uh, members that therefore you know i think you would need a lot of consistent polling putting uh, independence well ahead I think as well and I think that would start to do you know from a more sort of naked political point you know a independent Scotland would almost guarantee a Tory majority uh, in most uh, in most elections because you know famously Labour were very strong in, in, in Scotland and had lots of MPs up there so you know it, it might be uh, something that they might eye ahead of the next election but I think you know, it would be difficult to, 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 to get rid of those calls. I do think that though in the short term you know his whole uh, attack line for a long time was saying if you vote for Labour it's 2020 will be a year of two referendums a second Brexit referendum and a second Scottish referendum so if he was to turn around and allow a second Scottish referendum that probably wouldn't look that very good certainly in, in 2020 but we'll have to see further down the line whether he can continue to hold them off Now Kevin Labour used to be absolutely dominant in Scotland is there any way back for them now because they are an incredibly reduced force there now? It's very difficult to see I mean it looked like they were clawing their way back in 2017 when they went from one to seven. Now they're right back to square one again. Um, Poor old Ian Murray. Ian Murray. <laughs> Ian Murray's the last man standing uh, for the Scottish Labour Party. Uh, I'd, I'd really struggle to see 
where they go from here. They've managed to get themselves in, into a position, certainly in the election there, where no one really knew where they stood on independence or certainly on a second referendum yeah. or on Brexit. So um, they were appealing to nobody in Scotland. Um, maybe this is an opportunity now for them to rethink it. But again, it's all tied in with, with the Corbyn project because the Scottish Labour leader is Richard Leonard. Now, in any normal circumstances, after a night like they've just had, the Scottish Labour leader would fall on his sword. But he's so linked to Corbyn, Corbyn camp won't want Richard Leonard to go in case he's replaced by, you know, a moderate. Yeah, so yeah. Um, uh, it's it's just very depressing if you're a, a Scottish Labour supporter, I think, and there seems to be pretty few of them these days. We've also seen a pretty, uh, try that again, We've also seen a pretty decisive shift in Northern Ireland as well. Um, what's happened to the DUP there, Kevin? Yeah, well, they've gone from 10 to 8, and the, the, one of the big moments of last night was uh, Nigel Dodds, um, the deputy leader and the leader at, at Westminster, losing his seat in uh, North Belfast. It is North Belfast, isn't yeah. it? I, I, was, I think I said South yeah. Belfast last night. Um, and you know that was a fascinating contest because that became a basically a straight shootout between the DUP and Sinn Féin because the UUP they pulled out to help the DUP and the SDLP sorry for all the acronyms they pulled <laughs> out to help Sinn Féin and Sinn Féin won. Um, so yeah, that was a massive blow for them. They also lost uh, their big target seat was Sylvia Herman's seat in uh, North Down that the Alliance Party got uh, an MP elected so um, it was a pretty miserable night all told for the DP and as I said earlier they've gone from being this incredibly influential small party because of the parliamentary arithmetic before to now pretty irrelevant and also the other significant thing is that now for the first time in Northern Ireland history there are now more pro-nationalist yeah. MPs than pro-union MPs, which, you know, again, is an interesting straw of the wind. If there's, you know, you're worrying about Scotland leaving the UK, well, you know, there's factors at work in Ireland, which I think is just edging ever closer to to uh, reunification. Kevin touched on it there, but tactical voting seems to play a big big part in the, the change result in Northern Ireland. Um, are, are the DUP, though, paying a price for the, the, the pact with the Conservatives in 2017? Or does, does it go deeper than that, do you think? Yeah, I think they, they are. I think there was, a, uh, there was an anger amongst people in Northern Ireland that because of the fact that the DUP, sorry, the, the Sinn Féin don't take their seats, it meant that the only voice in the Westminster Parliament for the whole of Northern Ireland was the 10 DUP MPs and Lady Sylvia Herman. So they felt that, uh, that they were basically made to seem like a pro Brexit country that because all their MPs there who all their MPs there were very pro Brexit when actually as a country I think it, over, it voted just to remain rather than, mm -hmm. than to leave so I think that there was some anger there that they weren't being represented you know obviously it's down to Sinn Féin's abstentionism mainly but they just felt that they weren't really getting that voice across and I think they felt that you know the, the, the way the DUP had sort of you know worked the Conservative government I think there was some anger against that but I do also think that it there are domestic issues at play the fact is that the Northern Irish Assembly has not been sitting for almost three years now and there is anger towards the DUP over the collapse and the continued collapse of those power sharing talks and all that kind of stuff that I do think has, a, has had an effect on the DUP standing the cash for ash scandal and all that kind of stuff I think there's a lot more factors in those places than perhaps just the way we view it from Westminster I think there is a lot more going on there as well and it's interesting that the SDLP won, won two seats as well you know they've been pretty much written off they thought that they'd been 
um, overtaken and completely subsumed really by by Sinn Féin as as the as the pro nationalist voice in yeah. non island politics. But now they've they've come back from from the dead almost. So yeah. uh, it'll be interesting again to see pro nationalist voices uh, in in the Westminster Parliament. We've got an absolute uh, wealth of listeners' questions today, so thanks for sending those in, guys. Um, we will do our best. First one comes from Josh White, and I'll, I'll throw this one over to you, Kevin, not just because it's about Scotland, but <laughs> that's what's happened here. So um, the, the SNP have taken an unprecedented, uh, unprecedented 48 seats, and nationalist parties have taken more seats than unionists for the first time in Northern Ireland. So, big question, is this the end for the union? Uh, not necessarily, but it's certainly probably in its most precarious position that it's ever been, probably. I mean, it's not unprecedented, the SNP. They got 56 seats in 2015, but, you know, it's still a massive um, contingent of MPs that they're going to be sending down uh, to Westminster next week. You know, as we've already discussed, it certainly puts a lot of strain on union. I don't think it's inevitable that Scotland will become independent or that Ireland will, will unite. However... The conditions are certainly there. The, the conditions are more favourable than probably they've ever been, um, and I certainly wouldn't wouldn't rule it out. But I wouldn't I wouldn't rule out the possibility that the union somehow survives. But in order to survive, the government and the prime minister, who has made himself minister for the union, they're going to have to dream up a case for the union. They can't just rely on saying, "Oh well, Scotland shouldn't be independent." because it can't afford it or because of this, yeah, that. It, it's a bad idea because they have to make the case, the pro-union case for saying Scotland should stay in the, the UK, Northern Ireland should remain in the UK because this is what we can do together. I think that is the challenge, but it's a, it's a really, really difficult one. But I think the, the, the one factor again with, with Northern Ireland is the terms of the Brexit deal and the terms of the withdrawal agreement in terms of whether Northern Ireland stays within the European Union's customs union and how they're going to deal with customs checks and the border really doesn't seem like that's been solved at all. It was the, the big sort of uh, break between the Tories and the DUP in the past six months has been this, you know, Boris Johnson's renegotiated deal and, and what it means for Northern Ireland. And I do think that that is, has a real potential to put strain, you know, on the relationship between Westminster and, uh, and Stormont there. So we could see some more issues in terms of that as well when, when it comes to actually uh, a final agreement with the EU. Speaking of Brexit, um, Vicky Wong asks, with a Conservative majority, it means the UK is on track to leave the EU next month, but what are the chances of there being another extension to the Brexit deadline? She also says, go to bed. <laughs> so, uh, do you want to field that one? Uh, yeah, I think, um, uh, well, yeah, because, you know, the transition period as it currently stands is until 31st of December 2020. So that does not leave a very long time to sign a pretty wide-ranging free trade agreement between the UK and the EU. And also, the deadline for extending that is sometime in the summer, according to the agreement. Like So therefore, it basically gives the two sides only a few months to negotiate something or decide they're going to get to the end of it very quickly. So I do think that, you know, Boris Johnson will have less 
trouble getting that past his own party than he would have done previously. In fact, now with a big majority, I think he, he can agree. I think that the difficulty is is that he's talked so often about ending the dither and delay, and I think unless he can put forward a very cogent argument for extending the transition period, I think maybe he could say, well, it was originally envisaged to be two years, so let's make it two years from when we actually leave, you know, that sort of stuff. I think it you know, is possible, and I think that we'll see... Certainly, when he speaks to his, you know, his Brexit Sherpa and the negotiators, if they say, look, you know, we're not going to get it done, I don't think Boris Johnson does want to pursue a No Deal. And I think if if it came down to it, he perhaps would think, I've got five years as Prime Minister. You know, what's an extra six months to make sure we do actually leave with a deal? You know, I think that's the argument that he might make. He, you know, it's going to be a tough sell again. You know, given that he once said he was going to die in a ditch rather than extend. Uh, the Article 50 period, and then he did. You know, he could get a reputation as uh, as someone who 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 uh, ignores his promises on on Brexit. That way. Surely not. Surely not. Uh, Boris Johnson earning a reputation. Goes back to his promises. That would no, be, no, no, that'd no. be a terrible statement. No, it's true, true, true. I suppose, yeah. <laughs> Let's yeah. not get ahead of ourselves. Yeah, here, guys. Okay. Um, so our colleague Harriet Simmons. Yes. Asks. Um, I think she's looking for a little bit of hope here. Uh, it's a big question. What does the Labour Party need to do? going forward if they hope to win a majority again and do you think it will ever happen yeah i think it will happen again um you know the the, the tories aren't fated to always win general elections but i think history again teaches us that for labor to win it needs to be a broad church it needs to appeal beyond its base it needs to attract conservative voters needs to attract middle ground, centre-left and centre-right voters. And the, and the failure, I think, of the Corbyn project is that they believed that there was a majority there for a socialist programme. And I think that theory has been tested to destruction. And as much as it may stick in the throat of Corbynistas, you know, the only guy that's won um, a majority... He who shall not be named. Yeah, the only guy that's won a majority in, you know, half a century yeah. for the Labour Party... It's Tony Blair, and he was a centrist. You know, yeah. they can call him a red Tory for whatever they like, but surely it was better having a, a Labour government than not having a Labour government in their eyes if, if you're a Labour supporter. So, uh, yeah, I think the only way for Labour to return to power is to move back to the to the centre ground. But it's whether or not um, uh, the party membership will allow it to do that. And right now, it wouldn't. Um, but things can change but yeah Harry I would suggest that is the only way forward um, for the Labour Party if they want to get back into government well, anytime soon well I think that's the same for both parties you know the Tories struggled to get a majority in 2010 because they um, you know because they essentially they'd regressed to the classic kind of Tory seats you know in the south wealthy areas and they'd lost all of those kind of seats that maybe like Thatcher had won and it took a realignment this is the first time there's been a realignment since then, which has allowed the Tories to get a majority. And you, you feel it like for Labour, they've got to do the same thing. They've got to win those seats back, and then they've got to start to look to win those sorts of seats that Tony Blair won in 1997. Because that is the only, as Kevin says, the only person who's won a majority, and it's the only way you would win a majority, is to start to have seats. Because if you look at just the classic, traditional Labour seats, you end up at 250, not at 350, which is what you need. And it's not a peculiarly Labour issue. You know, the, the way that the Tories came back, I mean, the, the Tories looked dead on their feet in 2001, 2005, and the way they came back was because George Osborne and David Cameron sat down and said, right, look, we've pursued this right-wing agenda, we've been rejected by the electorate, so we've got to now tack to the centre, yeah. make ourselves more appealing to liberal voters, 
And lo and behold, they managed to get back into power. And, you know, I don't see, especially in the first past the post, I don't see any, any other alternative for Labour than to try and do that as well. Well, it's going to be fascinating to see how this all plays out over the next um, few weeks. That's all we've got time for on the Poll Home podcast today, but we will be back on Thursday next week when I think we'll have had a Queen's speech, is that right? Yeah, uh, Queen's speech is on Thursday. Definitely yeah. on Thursday, yeah. So that'll be a good one to get stuck into. Um, keep your questions coming in, and of course you can sign up for our free award-worthy seven-day-a-week breakfast briefing email by going to politicshome.com slash register. Until then, have a great one. 